Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you're passionate about product or just like being inspired, then why not pop over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or head to the podcast app of your choice and subscribe so you can never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we're going to take a ride on the product maturity curve and find out what happens when your company isn't all on the same page and some of the things you can do to start to make a difference. We'll find out what happens when a co-founder takes over as the VP of product and whether he can be accused of executive swooping. We'll also talk about the Instagramification of product management and how to make incremental progress and not get too depressed if everything's not quite like in the books. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Nis Frome. Nis is an entrepreneur, multiple dog owner and keen cyclist who's taken advantage of lockdown and clocked up 600 rides on his peloton. Also dislikes dressing up, which is pretty useful during the lockdown, and meetings, which, well, two out of three ain't bad. A keen drone pilot, Nis is now hovering 100 feet above the world of product management and taking the helicopter view as co-founder and VP of product for Feedback Loop. Hi Nis, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, thanks for having me on the show. No problem, it's an absolute pleasure. So first things first, you're currently VP of product at Feedback Loop. So classic question, who are Feedback Loop and what problem do they solve? Yeah, Feedback Loop is an agile research platform to generate rapid consumer feedback. The problem in simple business and economics terms is that there's a lot of demand for research and a lot of demand for data across an organization. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made, decision makers that want to make them, and there's not that many researchers to go around, right? So how do you solve that? basic limited supply, lots of demand. That's what we want to solve. We want to make it easier for non-researchers to do research. So when you say research, you're talking very specifically about what you'd maybe classically call discovery interviews and doing that kind of outreach and collecting that data into a central place, or are you talking about a different type of research? No, exactly that. Primary research. You know, uh, you've got a hypothesis. How do you actually go and get consumer customer feedback and try to make a decision? Excellent. And you're also the co-founder of Feedback Loop. So what does the rest of the team look like there? Yeah, so uh, we started the business about seven years ago, and I've worn pretty much every hat, (laughs) except for reviewing legal contracts, thankfully. And (laughs) so started the first four years on the marketing side. And we've talked, you know, we we had a a product management podcast, and we participated in the thought leadership community around it. And then now running products. We're about 75 people total. The product team is about nine. And, uh, you know, we have all the kind of standard functions you would imagine in a 75-person company. Yeah, I was going to say that's a pretty decent size. But in the product team itself, then, are we talking, I guess, obviously yourself as a VP, a bunch of product managers looking after certain bits of the product or lines of the product? But do you have, like, additional supporting product roles, like, you know, maybe analysts or BAs or even maybe product ops, which is very on trend at the moment? Yeah. So uh, great question. Yeah. So we have a director of product who was in a product role and you know has been promoted to the director role. We have four product managers and then we have a UX team of four and they kind of cover research discovery. Product operations is uh, fortunately and unfortunately somewhat of a uh, democratized function right now across the product <laughs> team. So it's a real pain point, product ops. You know, there's there's so many tools. There's so many different sorts of functions that just enable the product organization to operate, right? And so uh, I'm, that's a that's a really exciting trend, I think. 
Yeah, well, I guess as long as you're trying to at least uh, embody some of the theories behind it, even if you haven't got a dedicated team, it still yeah still means you're trying to make the right decisions and trying to do the right work to support the, the product. Yeah, yeah, it's a shared burden and a shared pleasure. So. <laughs> and you don't have any jobs listed on LinkedIn before Feedback Loop. So is this literally your first gig or did you do some others and you just didn't write them down? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, the answer is yes and no. I did start a company in college. We raised some venture money and uh, made a lot of the first-time entrepreneur mistakes. And we can leave it as a very, (laughs) very expensive MBA program, as my parents like to say. But (laughs) the first job post-college, yes. I co-founded his business with some other awesome people seven years ago and uh, have been here ever since. And what was it that made you decide that straight out of college, you're going to go straight into being an entrepreneur have you always had that bug or is that something that you you were kind of g'd on by a by a friend or, or <laughs> how did that work yeah it's a good question well i guess if uh, if you don't like having a boss you don't have a lot of other choices <laughs> so it's a uh, kind of a process of elimination if you will but no i've oh, so you're a rebel <laughs> might say that I, i've always been interested in building things and uh, having as much flexibility as possible in doing so and i love it it's a new challenge every day and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's fair enough. Uh, you're also an advisor at a couple of companies that I've seen as well, one called Codabyte and one called Session Rewind. So what are you advising them in? Are you more of an entrepreneurial founder type mentor or something like that? Or are you taking some of their product management thinking and, and helping them with that? Or is it something completely different? Yeah, it's kind of kind of the, the former, that sort of full stack advisory. Uh, these are companies where you know, they're solving problems we've had in building feedback loop, right? So Coderbyte's solving for technical hiring, which is really difficult. You just get so many applications for each technical role. And how are you possibly supposed to give every candidate a shot? What most companies do is they just default to pedigree. Anyone who went to Ivy League or, you know, <laughs> went to a, a name brand gets an interview and everyone else doesn't. So how do you solve that problem in a candidate-centric way? That's what Coderbyte's doing. And, and I love partnering with them on that. And it's been a really cool journey. And then Session Rewind is on the analytics side, right? Where you know, you've used a lot of these kind of session replay where it tracks everything your users are doing on your site. This is just a very expensive and very tedious sort of analytics platform to provision and use. And we talked about product ops before. Like if you don't have a dedicated person, Session Rewind's taking a very, very simple and straightforward approach to it. And so just really great to partner with them on that. Okay. So is that kind of just a on-demand ad hoc thing or do you spend quite a chunk of your time with them? How, how does that work? Yeah, well, I like to stay busy. So uh, (laughs) from my view, it's an ad hoc on demand. But from maybe a third party perspective, it's kind of around the clock. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that kind of dovetails very nicely with what you were saying earlier around wanting to kind of contribute sort of to thought leadership and paying it back to the community. So it's obviously not quite to the community. It's a limited sample there, but it still feels very aligned with what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of full spectrum, you know, mentorships to to thought leadership to angel investing as well and helping across the portfolio, mostly around product management and consumer insights. Uh, So you've got your portfolio going as well as full stack, as you say. (laughs) But you said that you took on product management a bit down the line. Mm -hmm. You've done basically everything in the company from from what you said, aside from the legal stuff, as, as you say. What was it that made you decide it was time to take over the the product function? I mean, did you have other people there that you couldn't replace and you just wanted to take on that challenge yourself or was it not working very well at the time and you needed to shake it up? How how did that play out? Because it's 
it's obviously very common for, for example, the CEO to take a big hand in product. And that's always seen in some ways as kind of an anti-pattern after a while, right? Because you want to have actually a strong, mm-hmm. empowered product team there to Absolutely. actually make good decisions. So how, how did that come to pass? Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, there's kind of like a micro and a macro to the perspective. So the micro is like, yeah, it was a matter of circumstance, a matter of we didn't have someone else and kind of stepping in and do it. Uh, the macro is really from day one, I've wanted to figure out how can this, how can we get as close to the customer as possible and have as big an impact as possible. A lot of companies start with product. We actually started with go to market. We started with like building a community around the podcast, around thought leadership saying the future of research is democratized and it's going to be more people who have never conducted research before conducting research. But we need to build this community. We need to understand their pain points and their perspective. And that was the marketing angle. Over the course of several years, it became clear the bigger impact was to start building the product and and actually executing on the value proposition we had identified. So I I like to think that really uh, my job is really building the product team to do that, not making the product decisions that I, I, I'd like to think they would agree that I, I, I <laughs> stand back quite a bit and give them quite a bit of autonomy and, and try not to play the anti-pattern of the executive-driven <laughs> product decisions. So uh, I give them a lot of flexibility and my job is really to build that team, give them the space and just get out of the way. That's fair enough. Or air cover, as I like to call it as well. So <laughs> Absolutely. From myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so I've seen people in the past, certainly in senior leadership positions, executive positions, almost sitting there arguing against themselves a little bit, you know, kind of like Gollum in, in Lord of the Rings where he's like doing the two different voices or whatever because they're trying to basically have two hats or more than two hats at, at sometimes. Have you ever found that a challenge or are you quite good at kind of synthesizing what needs to happen and kind of disagreeing with yourself before you get into the room? Well, it's, it's, it's a challenge if you don't know that it's happening, right? And I think that's something yeah. we talk about as an organization a lot. This world just moves too fast and 2020 kind of hit a lot of companies where it hurt, right? Because they didn't... It, this has been a trend that's been happening for a while in 2020. It just accelerated even faster, right? And you just can't possibly command and control anymore. It's impossible, right? Our product team doesn't feel like they know everything going on in the product. How is an executive with 40 other responsibilities supposed to keep up with the product? They can't, right? The product managers feel disconnected from each other. And that's that's by design, right? Like there's you, there's only so much context switching you can do. And as long as you internalize and recognize this world is moving fast, I, can, I can't control it, but I can operate and adapt within it as long as I set guardrails for focus because otherwise I'll do a little bit of nothing. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. As long as you're conscious of it, as you say, it, yeah. it can just help you along and make sure that you're not doing what you said and kind of just swooping in or yeah, highest paid person's opinion or that, all that Absolutely. stuff, which we all, we all don't like. Now, Obviously, product management is a practice in and as of itself, and there's lots of material, there's lots of training, there's books and videos and courses, and there's product school, there's Mind the Product, there's all these different places you can learn about product management. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, you say you had the podcast and you were trying to pay back to the community before that anyway, but did you find yourself going back to any of these sources or any other sources to actually skill up in what you'd call potentially the product management? hard skills or did you basically just learn on the job and kind of just take it from your experience yeah well i i think probably every every product manager you know it's still a very new function so we're all kind of learning on the job we call it the school of trial and many errors right (laughs) but no i've you know i i kind of feel like i'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of the great product leaders out there who have written the books who we've interviewed on the podcast i know you had marty kagan we had 
we had Marty Kagan and it's, uh, you know, you listen to it and you, there, you can't not apply it. Right. And that's something, <laughs> you know, we've talked about sometimes a blessing, sometimes a curse. Right. But you get enough perspectives and you get a general gist of how this thing works. And it, if, if nothing else, it gives you some shortcuts into, into product management. Yeah. I've heard some people suggest that it, even if it's something that they were already doing, it's good to sometimes hear someone famous or you know, famous in product circles actually say the same thing because it gives you some kind of confidence that you've done mm-hmm. the right thing and that you're not just making it up yourself. And you can kind of just sit there and go, ah, oh, yeah, no, that, that does make sense. And, and it's good that someone said that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not healthy to have overconfidence, but it's also not healthy <laughs> to be second guessing yourself all the time, especially if you're trying to align stakeholders and they get a sense that you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, that never happens to me, obviously. <laughs> but one thing we spoke about before this call was how, I mean, touching on those books that we just mentioned and, and some of those authors and some of the great thought leaders and some of the great thinking that's already been done that we've got the benefit that you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago we wouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. But even then, there's still this, to some extent, disparity between maybe what is presented in those books and, and what these thought leaders are saying compared to what then you see other people saying. So people mm-hmm. in the front line complaining that they're in feature factories or people complaining that they're not getting this empowerment, people complaining that <laughs> that you know, CEOs or hippos are coming in and telling them what to do and not giving yep. them any autonomy. Now, that doesn't sound like that's something that happens in your company because you've been there from the start and you've at least claimed that you that you don't do that. Yep. But you seem to have quite strong opinions about it. So is that from the the podcast and the community work you've done or have you picked that up from other places? How have you seen some of that manifest itself? Well, I can tell you that uh you talk to enough people and you see it's not a recipe for success in the <laughs> highest paid person's opinion is the one that you go with. Like there's only so many failed product launches. I say that's the greatest lesson for the entire industry, right? There's enough failure out there that people are starting to learn the lesson. And that's that's honestly probably having more of an impact than any book, any interview, any podcast we could possibly do is like, you listen to enough opinions, you build the wrong product, and eventually you come to the realization like, this is not a good way to win <laughs> in a market, right? Because our competitors have much less ego, right? And they're just trying to sell for the customer, right? And they're not they don't care what the executive thinks. They're solving for the customer and, and they're pivoting and they're adapting and they're having a lot more success. Let's do that. It's interesting though, because whilst I agree that that is, that's right in theory, right? So you'd sit there and say, okay, well, we can look at all these big tech companies and we can see the decisions they're making and how they run their product teams. And obviously that's very similar to how all these books say as well, because the people that wrote these books generally work for those companies or work in and around those companies. What I've been reflecting on is not all of the people that need to be persuaded about this stuff have read those books. And my cliche that I've been trotting out recently is like, you can't just walk into your new job and wave inspired at the CEO and expect it to be okay because the CEO hasn't read inspired. The CEO absolutely should read inspired, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they haven't and they probably never will. And they're not going to listen to you. And I've you know, been told personally that, oh, yeah, that all sounds great. But that's book talk. My repost to that would be, well, yeah, but that book was written by someone who was very successful and has worked for a very successful company. But it's difficult to, without physically hitting someone on the head with a book, it's difficult <laughs> to actually land that message. And is that something that you've 
either seen or had experience of someone actually managing to persuade a CEO or another executive that this is actually the right way to go and perhaps to leave some of their legacy biases on on the table. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a problem that a lot of product managers have. I, I imagine there's there's similarities in other roles that are a little bit new. I'm sure data science has some of the similar complaints about the way it's done <laughs> and the way it should be done. But product management definitely suffers from from a lot of that. So the first thing really is, you know, when when someone kind of early in their product management career comes to talk to me about it, I don't say, hey, let me go connect you with a product leader or someone who agrees with you. I want to go connect you with another product manager who's in your same shoes where you thought the grass was greener at this company. Great. I know someone there. I'll have you talk to them. It's the same thing, right? Companies <laughs> are really good at PR and really good at uh, you know employer branding, but it's the same thing. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's somewhere in that gray area of not aspirational, not ideal product management. Very rare. It does exist. The aspirational form of product management, what you read about in Inspired, it definitely exists, and I know places it exists, but it's not the norm by any means. So the first person I connect you with is someone else. So we can just drop the imposter syndrome, and we can drop the. I'm in this worst situation ever. Like that is the status quo at most companies. And once you realize that, you realize, okay, well, we're we're on the same page now. How do we actually realistically get to the next step? Because it's not binary. It's not throwing the book at the executive. They read it and all things are, you know, roses and unicorns. It doesn't work that way. It's a very tedious uphill battle until you hit a point where it's like, oh, it becomes a downhill battle. And that's what I talk to a lot of product managers about is like, how do you build momentum and turn this uphill battle into a downhill battle? Yeah, although downhill battles sound kind of tough as well because you're fighting gravity and you probably end up running too fast, right? But yeah, I get the point. Yeah. But it's interesting because I've always felt as well that as a maybe a new product manager or a, a product manager that's working for a new company and you see things aren't quite working the way that they say in the books and you start to get depressed and you think that this isn't right and you know the, yep. it's just that yep. I'm in the wrong company and and actually as yeah. you say everything's not everything I mean there are, as you say there are some places that are going to be okay or more like that but that it almost puts undue pressure totally. on a product manager to live up to something which actually doesn't exist in many places do you, do you think that's yeah. fair oh absolutely it's like the instagramification of, <laughs> of product management and it's just Listen, that doesn't, uh, and and it's it. We got to tread delicately here because it's not to say that people should put up with the feature factories and being project managers. By all means, like my recommendation, much of the time, maybe not most, but a lot of the time, is for someone to quit their job. That is often <laughs> the right answer, but it's not the right answer simply because the company isn't doing things the aspirational way. It's the right answer only if, through a bunch of techniques, the company literally prevents you from doing things in any better way and is like insistent on a not effective approach to product management but it, it's more of a plan b it's not a plan a yeah it's interesting actually i was having a discussion on some social network or other earlier uh, with someone who was complaining about product owners and how there are lots of bad product owners and they're not doing the job that they should be doing and and stuff like that and i'm sure that's probably true in you know some companies you probably do have people that aren't performing to the level that they maybe should but my counterpoint was that in many cases, these people probably want to do good. You know, they probably read these books, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they're being prevented from doing good by the companies not allowing them to do that, which then sets up this vicious cycle because then what they're going to do eventually is leave, like you say. They're going to go to another company and the original company is going to hire another product manager or product owner or whatever. 
they're going to start treating them, let's say, badly as well. And then the company itself is never going to – they're going to go through dozens of product managers and never succeed because they're – I think it's like – They're repelling what what they need. Well, yeah, and it's almost like they're blaming the quality perhaps of the product manager and suggesting, oh, it's just that we didn't get the right product manager. So they move on and they get a new product manager. Eventually, that one leaves as well, and they just end up in this cycle of never actually improving what they need to improve. Totally. So totally. Yeah, I think I think you said something really interesting, which is you know, stakeholders blaming other stakeholders, and 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 sometimes you know there are bad actors, of course, in every organization, in every field. But a lot of the time, what what the books and the product management kind of like aspirational content. You know, they they typically are written in an, in a scenario where everyone was already aligned because the culture from the top down was was customer focused. Yeah. Right. But most companies aren't don't have an incentive to be customer focused. They they usually actually have an opposite incentive, which is we have a working business model and we're going to make it impossible to screw that up. Yeah. We're going to make it impossible to to adapt to pivot to do anything. Like we are hiring people to keep this ship running in this direction right into the iceberg, but hopefully there's no iceberg. Right. And so. <laughs> One of the things that really needs to be done is like align why the customer focus even matters to different stakeholders because it matters very differently to a designer than it does to a researcher than it does to a product manager. They have completely different incentives, and if you can't speak from their language, you're, you're you've got a, a communication barrier. Yeah, I think that alignment is the the biggest barrier, and I think also what you tend to get certainly in in some companies that I've heard of is people that I've spoken to is you get like the the people that maybe aren't from a product background because because they're not and that's fine you know not everyone is but they take customer centricity as meaning especially in a sales led organization just doing whatever the last customer said totally which totally and also because they're i don't know i guess their motivations are different because they're being probably paid to do something in a slightly different way they're being rewarded or monetized totally they, they might be commissioned on one customer exactly and their incentive is completely different than you which are commissioned dr- probably not commissioned at all but but the <laughs> KPI to drive oh, I wish. some sort yeah some sort of adoption across the customer set i mean th- you can't reconcile that there are something you have you have engineering which might be uh driven by budget and timelines but product is driven by discovery and hypothesis testing these things do not align very easily and unless you internalize and realize that as a pm you're 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 going to spin in circles but do you think that a pm on the ground can actually fix that or do you think that that's something that there has to be some kind of moment at the top where that is kind of realized some kind of conversion that happens where where they i don't know i don't even know who would tell them but where someone's some coach or some book that they read or you know something that forces that change from the top or do you think it can come from the bottom as well the answer is it depends obviously <laughs> from the top is a, a quite a bit more straightforward i think there's a lot more than that pms can do than they think they can do and that begins with something we talked about earlier like trauma is a very powerful driver of behavior change in an organization right we we've been in the digital age for quite some time right it is pretty clear that the winners and markets iterate and the losers and markets guess. And <laughs> it's, it's, you know, this is not like, it's not even qualitative, like it's fairly quantitative at this point, right? And so 
you have almost everyone has launched a failed product at this point. If you've been in product management for more than two years, you have launched a failed feature, a failed product, and you know exactly what went wrong, right? Like maybe sometimes it was truly a third party, it was a regulation or something changed very quickly. But for the most part, you guessed, right? And you took a leap of faith when what you really needed to do was to get customer feedback and iterate, right? It's it's 90% of the time that, right? And so what I don't see product managers do enough is connect the dots. That will happen and they will not connect that to the mistakes made, right? You need to connect a bad outcome to the mistakes made and a good outcome to the, the right ways to work. And when you do that, that catches on very quickly because everyone wants to be successful. There's no one in a business who is incentivized to launch a failed feature or product. <laughs> that reflects badly on literally everyone from the press to your support, you know, that had a train up on something that no one's ever going to use, right? Nobody benefits from that. And you have to push on that trauma and connect it to a bad way of working. I was also talking the other day with someone around this whole idea of basically putting your hands up and admitting a mistake or saying that you don't know something or you know, stuff like that. And that's something that a lot of people, again, culturally don't really get to do because there's this almost, I want to say macho fear because obviously there's lots of men leading these companies, but it's obviously, it's not just the men. It's across all of the people in the company that are sitting there terrified of putting their hands up and Yeah, they're saying, supposed to have the answers, right? Because historically, yeah. you they're, they're leading. But th this is where like, we have to redefine a lot of the terminology. We go from decisions to hypotheses. We go from launches to experiments, right? We ship to learn, right? And, and that goes for, for leadership as well. Leadership does not mean you have to have all the answers. And if you redefine that upfront of what your job is, it's much easier to operate in this kind of fast-paced, rapidly changing world. But if you don't redefine it, if you're using yesterday's terminology to operate today, then yeah, you're kind of always boxed into a corner that you can't get out of. Uh, exactly. We also mentioned before this call the concept of like a product maturity curve and how people in the company and then teams in the company and then the companies themselves could all be basically on different parts of that curve, different parts of maturity, different stages of maturity. And whilst that's a really interesting concept to me, I mean, the, the thought that there could be misalignment between not just the company and or the exec team and a, and a product manager, but also just the product manager and the product team and the product team and the company. How have you seen that manifest itself in companies or with people that you've spoken to? What are some of the symptoms of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is kind of the notion that that organizations are not, I don't know that they ever were, but certainly not today. They're not monolithic identities. They don't all operate the same way. You can go with an organization. One of the most common examples would be if a big company has acquired a smaller unit and they let, leave them with some autonomy. I mean, they will literally have a completely different culture, right? They will they will share nothing in common. But it's a really great opportunity for one culture to start seeping into the other, especially if it's a higher performing, more customer focused organization to start learning from the others. And so that's, that's what I talk a lot about, right? Is that you don't need to get an entire organization to change to have an impact. You could set an example and that can catch on. Right. And, and, and that can be contagious. Right. And, but it, it's only ever contagious if you really connect the dots. Right. That's trauma for why things don't work out. And that's also being a champion for when, for when a feature goes well. You can't just celebrate that customers are using this new feature. They're paying more. You have to immediately connect it to, well, it's because we interviewed them. It's like, 
it's not a surprise that a feature is going well, and it shouldn't be a surprise when a feature doesn't go well. It should be directly correlated to the work that was done up front that is product management. Oh, absolutely. Now, as product managers, we're supposed to be flexible and adaptive. And as one person put it to me recently, have strong opinions, but hold them lightly, which I thought was kind of nice, nice way to put it. But given that, are there any product management frameworks or theories or even just opinions that you're quite strongly or that you hold quite strongly and, and are fairly immovable on? Or are you very flexible and you just take everything as it comes? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I definitely like that kind of motto of, you know, be confident, but you've got to be open to new ideas. I, I think there are, you know, first principles and foundational sort of notions that won't change in product. I can't think of a time where you won't want to serve the customer, but even within that, there's a lot going on, right? So, so something I talk to our team about is like our customers conflict with each other. There are customers who literally <laughs> want us to do something and others who don't want us to do that exact thing. Right? So how do you reconcile that? How do you, re like, you're not aligned internally and your customers aren't aligned, right? And so something I talk about is like, we need to have mental models, right? We need to, like, we can't process all feedback for the first time. Like, it, we've never, like, we don't have a digestive system that knows what to do with it. So one of the things we do on the product team is we segment our customers periodically. And we always have like a modern mental model of how they're segmented where we have who we consider our forward-thinking customers. So those are the customers living in the future. They are working today in the way that everyone will work in five years. And it is ugly. They duct tape things together. They do crazy workflows. They're the ones connect Zapier to a spreadsheet to send this data to Slack <laughs> and that data over here. Like, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, that's... Never seen that happen ever in my life. Ever. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's ugly, but we get it. You care about this problem being solved. And then you have the customers on the whole other end who just like, if the world never changed again and they didn't have to ever adapt, like they would be <laughs> thrilled, right? And so you've got to recognize who's who because there's one market that's growing and there's one market that's shrinking, right? The companies working in the future, that's going to be tomorrow's market, but it might not be today's market. And the companies you know that are stuck in the past, that's today's market, but won't be tomorrow's market, right? And so these are the sort of mental models that I think you need to have. And everything is open for interpretation but beyond that. But you can't be processing every ounce of feedback like it's the first time you've gotten it. You need to have some of these heuristics built out to be able to operate quickly today. Yeah, I think one of the problems I've seen in the past as well is when you have, for example, say a customer success team that is very incentivized around individual customers, mm -hmm. as you say, of which many are going to start to disagree with each other because they're different customers but they all want their voice or they all want their requests at the top of the list and they don't even agree within, say, the customer success team, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which obviously is a very, a very tricky situation because you basically end up making everyone unhappy in that situation. Exactly. I, you know, there is, it, there's kind of a weird cognitive dissonance that has to exist in SaaS where we have to think that every problem has a solution that can be productized, that there's a critical mass that all wants the same thing, and that's not a guarantee. Right. It, it, it doesn't have to be that 80% of the market wants the same thing. Right. And so that's something we talk about as a team. Like, let's find critical mass. But if we can't find it, let's call it out. Right. It might be that we have five different customer segments and no individual segment is more than 30% for how this problem should be solved for them. And a blanket solution, either we can't solve this problem with technology or we need to have three different approaches that we choose to juggle. And if so, like, let's look at that from a business standpoint. But I think a lot of companies 
don't think of that. They build something that doesn't solve any of their customers' problems because they, <laughs> they, they assume that it all had to be the same solution when that, that just wasn't the right approach. A cautionary tale to all SaaS product managers around the world listening to this. Now, I've not asked this question for a while, so I'm going to wing it, but I like to call it the barbecue question. And you're, it looks like you're in quite a sunny part of the world. I know you're in, you're in Texas, so I'm assuming that you've had your barbecue down there. Tonight. You're going to have one tonight. Brilliant. Okay, yeah. so I'm not sure what the lockdown situation is there at the moment, but imagine that you had some people over at your barbecue tonight that were socially distanced, but still kind of interested in chatting to you. And you recall in horror when they asked you the immortal question, well, so so what do you do then? And obviously you could hide behind the fact that you're a co-founder and say that you're the co-founder of a company, but they, they push and you have to say, well, I'm the VP of product for this company. And they say, well, what's that? You know, I'm in charge of the product managers. And they say, well, what's a product manager? What do you say to that person? It's a great question. I say that I have this metaphor that's half-baked here, so stick with me, and I don't think I've ever <laughs> kind of talked about this. I like to think of my role and the role of product management somewhat as like an enzyme, like in the, in the biological sense where you know your body can't process certain information and certain chemicals without enzymes that transform one thing into another. And so I think that's what product management is to some degree. Like we are transforming customer feedback into actionable insight, or we're working with the research team's output and transforming it into product stories. And we're transforming product stories into execution. Like companies built products and services before anyone used the term product manager. These things existed. (laughs) They were just very, very slow and tedious and didn't scale to the digital world. Now you have the digital world with a lot more sorts of uh, stimuli and a lot more sorts of decisions that can be made because of the iterations that exist in the digital environment. And so product managers act as an enzyme to enable an organization to literally operate in this fast-paced world. And so that's kind of like a metaphor I've always been playing with. Like, how do we take what would be a two-month process and make it a one-day process? And that's my role, is to accelerate these cycles that, that exist in any business, whether you like it or not. And as an added bonus, you keep people's clothes really clean, which is obviously <laughs> also fantastic. And you said before this call that you were passionate about writing. Does that mean that there's a Nisrome book on the horizon that we can look forward to explaining some of your opinions and theories about product management? So it's funny. I would love to. One of the things I'm always very careful about in writing and thought leadership, and it's literally what we talked about here. Like, I don't want to, I want to do no harm. I don't want, I never try to create content that doesn't have the context. Like, uh, this isn't what works. This is what worked for me. And here was the context surrounding that. Because what I hate is, is you know, my product team, they'll read something and they'll take it. It's like, okay, well, hold on. That company has raised a billion dollars, right? <laughs> they don't, you know, they might have a, just a larger appetite for failure because they're placing so many bets, right? You've got to understand that context. So I would love to write a book one day, but it, it has to be in in a way where I can provide the sort of context and where I think readers can self-identify and apply and adapt it, but not where it's, I don't want to write like another product management gospel that does more harm than good. You don't want to write something that's going to depress all these product managers that are already depressed that, they, that they're not achieving their goals in all the other books as well. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. And where can people find you if they want to chat to you about product or anything that they've heard here? I mean, you say you've got your other podcast, maybe they can come and listen to that if they run out of episodes of mine, but where else is good to, to catch up with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've got the podcast uh, aptly named This Is Product Management. And then I uh, spend probably too much time on Twitter. Uh, Nisfrome <laughs> is my handle. And then on LinkedIn as well. And tell me your thoughts. What do you think I got right? What did I get wrong? I'm, like we said, uh, the, all of this is on the table and we're open-minded about kind of all of our theories in product management. These are hypotheses. Strong opinions, but lightly held. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So thanks very much for spending the time. And uh, obviously, you and I hopefully stay in touch. But as for now, as I say, thanks very much. Yeah. Take care, everyone. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the conversation inspiring and interesting. If you did, it'd be great if you could pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on the podcast app of your choice, take a look at some of the other episodes and get inspired by some of the other great conversations I've been fortunate enough to have. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thank you and good night.